from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gala Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Procter & Gamble's circular economy strategy, the great democratization of transport, an interview with Hawaii's visionary clean energy legislator, and can rock concerts like Coachella ever really be green? We're striking a dissonant chord this week on 350. It's April 20th, 2018, 420, as the cool kids say. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Are you celebrating 420? <laughs> you are in California. I can't celebrate here. You're basically saying, what are you smoking anyway? What are you smoking I anyway, Joel? I wouldn't tell you even if I, I wanted to. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it, we've been here. Uh, Oakland has long been, way before legalization, um, sort of an open secret. We're Our office has a, across the plaza from us. I mean, you, you could, I suppose, you know, stones throw if there's a, maybe a bad metaphor, but there's a police station right there. <laughs> I mean, w- you know, with, within literally shouting distance of our front door. And people are out there, you know, celebrating 420 all year long. So uh, it's not a big thing in our neck of the woods. Um, what's going on in Jersey on that? I don't remember where the, where you guys are. I don't remember where we are either, actually. Um, I Still in the medical <laughs> realm, if you will. I, I think our governor has a lot more things to worry about at, at this point. Although I do know that they, they um, you know, consider it a potential revenue source. Uh, <laughs> although, two words, Atlantic City. So I don't know. Um, we'll see what happens with that. I, I uh We've got other events coming up, though, right? We've got Earth Day on the weekend. Earth Day yeah. is Earth Day is uh, coming up, or as we at GreenBiz call it, Sunday, um, because it's just another day uh, for us. We don't really, uh, you know, celebrate it per se. Although this year we did do something kind of cool, which is that um, we had our, our growing company. We're you know what, twenty five or twenty eight people now had our first ever day of service, all company day of service, where, and unfortunately, uh, we couldn't include our East Coast uh, partner, you, on on this, but um, we had a great day at City Slicker Farms, which is in West Oakland, just uh, barely a mile from uh, the Green Biz office. It's City Slicker Farms, is this uh, acre and a half uh, farm park that's uh, that's become this real model for how you can promote community farming and address uh, food deserts. Um, it's got a, a 28 plot community garden, a chicken coop, beehives, orchards, a farm stand, playground and community uh, sort of center and uh, helping to you know not only address foods insecurity but but just insecurity period as as uh, Executive Director Rodney Spencer has put it. So we got to um, roll up our sleeves, get our hands literally dirty, and uh, you know play in the soil, which was is always fun to do. And it's you know as a as an employee engagement and bonding thing. You know, not that we need much bonding. We're pretty well bonded at Greenvis, but it was still a fun event. So we'll be doing that or some version of that again, and hopefully. 
Yeah, hopefully we'll get you out too. Well, I'm keeping my eyes open for some opportunities out here. I mean, you'd be surprised at how many community farms and, and farmer networks are in this area. So maybe I'll take your lead and, and look for something out here in northern New Jersey. Well, so much for the upcoming holidays or today's holiday. Let's get back into last week's Week in Review. So Heather, you have uh, some really great stories this week, and I want to talk about the first the uh, one you did about Procter and Gamble's circular economy strategy, which includes water and yes diapers. Uh, what's going on at P and G? Well, so uh, we've discussed this many times. There's so many great commitments coming out of um, large companies, but what we're trying to do now is really look at the, the more um, unique ones, unusual ones. The thing that struck me about what P&G is doing is, first of all, number one is water, right? So we, and I believe that this will be the case um, in the coming months, are seeing a much more heightened focus on water reclamation projects, water recycling, um, ways that companies can really reduce their draw on the fresh water in a given region. And what makes this particular strategy interesting is that they're going to focus on um, industrial sites first, right? So their own manufacturing facilities. And as the model, they're using this, um, this really unique uh, uh, facility in China. They call it the Chinese Garden because it's surrounded by literally by, you know, garden features. Um, they've got bioswales, they've got wetlands, um, and they've really incorporated this into the, the footprint of the location. Um, so they're in the middle of a big assessment. Um, you know, specifically that, that, by the way, that site is, is, has reduced its draw on the fresh water system by 95%. So, you know, they're, they're recirculating everything. They're putting it through the cooling towers, using it for the, uh, the cleaning processes at this plant, which happens to be, um, one of their, you know, one of their biggest, most important facilities. It, it, it produces head and shoulders, which is, I think, Last I checked, the biggest uh, brand of shampoo in the world. So they're not—they're not just experimenting in places where it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? They're—they're they're putting it right into the middle of a, a really important operation. And they're doing something with diapers in, <laughs> of all places, Venice, Italy. Yes. So first of all, they're not diapers; they're absorbent hygiene products. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> um, but which I was a brand new phrase I didn't know, but. Yes. So uh, diapers, right? So I don't know about your parents, Joel, but my mom did the whole uh, diaper cleaning service and, you know, she used cloth diapers. And But um, as we know, um, uh, disposable diapers are a big problem and you can, and, and they're visible in, in certain emerging economies like you know, India, you, you see them on the roadside and it's, you know, it's, a, you know, a waste problem, but also really a, a health issue, right? So these soil diapers and so forth. So what P&G is trying to do is look at the system um, and say, hey, okay, in certain places, and, and Italy happens to be one of them, um, they're going to test this new um, strategy of putting themselves in the middle of the collection system and taking back these used diapers and actually basically sanitizing them and then reusing all the different components, the plastics, the, the absorbent materials in them and repurposing them. So they've got to actually set up a joint venture to do this and they will be inserting themselves into different um, metropolitan areas where they can really kind of closely control the whole process from, from collection into reprocessing and so forth. So it's a really unique uh, effort and one that, you know, that 
you know, if it can scale, it would, would be very impactful. So why, why are they doing this? Do you have any sense of what's driving this? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, because they recognize that people think that disposable di- diapers are very convenient, and they certainly are. I, I know that if I were raising children and had, and had infants now, I, I would have a hard time you know, it's easy. It's easy. It's easy to take. It's easy to, um, you know, as a as a person, to use them. And I think they realize that they're they're presenting a big problem. So, um, you know, not only are they trying to address this this issue of waste that they're creating, you know, it's it was created by that industry. They're also looking to take it. You know, let's be honest, take advantage of the of the solution, right? So they've set up this joint venture. If this scales they can be getting revenue from selling the material. They can put it back into the process and so forth. So, I, I mean, it's a, again, it's a circular economy strategy, um, an early experimental one, but something that, you know, should be worth watching. Well, and I, th- I think one of the parts of it that's worth watching is that they have set up a, a you, you wrote, a global asset recovery purchases team. Mm-hmm. GARP. Oh, I like yep. that. Uh, world according, the world according to, to GARP. Yeah, the Global Asset Recovery Purchases Team, which imagines new applications for production scraps and other industrial waste. And um, so already in China, the waste from one facility is being used as material material for bricks. And, and in India, some scraps are being used to create um, wall partitions for homes mm-hmm. and, and businesses. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's interesting is how... Uh, they're finding value in waste, and and that of course is a lot of what the circular economy is about. So yeah, their phrase is waste to worth, actually. And by the way, I want to just point out that GARP team has been around for a while, um, but but of course gaining new attention. So let's move over to a different story uh, by one of the people who will be speaking at Verge Transport, part of the Verge. Uh, event series that we'll be having coming up in October in Oakland. Uh, Gabe Klein uh, wrote about the great democratization of transportation. Now, this isn't necessarily a new idea. By the way, Gabe Klein is the co-founder of something called CityFi, uh, which is looking at uh, innovative city initiatives, and, and transportation is, is is at the heart of that. You know, we, we've been talking about this for a long time in terms of you know, how things like Zipcar and Uber and Car2Go and, and Lyft actually start to bring mobility uh, to more and more people. And I guess he's laying out a, a way here on, on how to make that happen and how that's happening in places where the, the City Fi has been operating, like in Seattle, where they created a new mobility playbook project trying to bring transportation, I guess, to more and more people. Gabe's partner in the, the Verge uh, talk that he'll be doing is his um, longtime colleague, Robin Chase from Zipcar. So he's he's been studying um, this issue of sharing data across the public and private sector for quite a while um, in places like Washington and Chicago, right? So the, uh, his notion is that um, you're going to have these, and we've talked about this before, multimodal hubs, right, where where you need to be able to accommodate um, all different sorts of modes of transportation. And unless there's open data, um, and that goes both ways, P.S., um, not just the public sector to the private sector, but, but the other way, um, that you will be able to better um, schedule things. You'll be able to reroute traffic if, if you need to on the fly. Um, you'll be able to plan more, um, you know, public transit routes and so forth. So 
Uh, he's got a lot of firsthand experience in doing this, and I'm I'm excited for uh, this discussion at Verge later this year. Yeah, and the, the democratization part we're talking about is not just about uh, making mobility more accessible, but it's also about having more people involved in making mobility and transportation decisions. Because as we get closer and closer, for example, to things like autonomous cars, there will be some people say, well, that's great. We do, why do we need transit? And of course, we need transit in most places, and particularly places where people don't necessarily have access to cars, autonomous or otherwise. And and, and hearing from people who want to, to be in livable, walkable communities and, you know, what does that look like? What does that take from a transportation perspective? And those are really interesting conversations. Uh, how do you, uh, how does a city make investments? How does it make policy decisions? How does it favor or, uh, or balance the needs of the business community uh, and people who come in to shop as well as the people who live there who have jobs or need to get go to school or healthcare or shopping or whatever? Those are interesting challenges every city is going to be facing now, and um, the technology is, as it is in so many other areas, rising to meet those challenges, but it's not just a technology fix, it's a community conversation fix, it's a, it's, it's a let's get everyone at the table. So this is definitely something that would be the heart of Verge Transport which of course is one of the three concurrent conferences we'll be doing in October along with Verge Energy and Verge Circular. So, um, uh, but let's go to another transportation topic. And again, back to a story that uh, you published uh, this week about how the maritime industry is reducing emissions. So big ships crossing the Pacific in particular are suddenly getting greener? Yeah. So, uh, and this is a fascinating topic for me to research because I didn't know a whole lot about it, Joel, but, um, the, the catalyst for this story was the, the deal, um, or the tentative deal reached last week by, um, members of the International Maritime Organization. They've committed to ringing, ringing out, uh, at least half of the shipping sector's footprint, carbon footprint by 2050. Um, and just for perspective, like, why are they doing this? Why do they need to do this? Well, this is the only industry uh, that sits outside the Paris Agreement. So partly because, you know, there's so many different countries that have a, of a say, but but the, the waters that these ships operate in aren't exactly owned by anyone. So how do you say that a certain country is going to commit to certain uh, emissions level reductions? Um, it's very hard to quantify, you know, how close does a ship need to to be to the shore in order for this to to count and and so forth? So it's been kind of this like sticky argument, um, and um, which kind of has allowed the industry to 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 wriggle itself out of any meaningful action, right? Um, at least at the industry level. But um, you know, it's a sector that that contributes anywhere from two to four percent of the world's emissions, right? You, you see different figures on that. I've seen two, but I've also seen like you know up to to four. So you know, definitely huge, um, huge industry. One that that um, needs to take action now. I what what I try to do with my story is uh, look at what needs to happen next, right? So, you know, I think, um, and I'm here. Here, I'm going to pontificate for a moment because this story kind of does that. But um, one thing and one factor that you know that if you look at those who cover the the industry, like the carbon carbon war room, 
they'll agree that one of the reasons this really hasn't been such a big issue is because the people that ship things haven't really been talking about it. So you see very few companies, like the ones that put goods and, and on these ships, really talking about this. Um, Heineken has said some things. Um, they're testing biofuels inland. That's not even necessarily covered by this agreement. IKEA is is doing things like squeezing more things into one container so that you, have, you can ship fewer of them. But but honestly, if you look and try to find companies that, that have actually said something about addressing their shipping emissions, not their trucking and train emissions, there's like very few people. Um, the one notable exception on as far as science-based targets goes is K-Line, which is one of the big Japanese container um, companies. They're, they've actually officially, they have officially verified science-based targets. So, you know, that's one of the things. Um, What's interesting is, is, is all the technology that's, that's coming into play here, as you're saying. And, that, and it's also just the way things are routed. It's uh, the, the carbon footprint of, of, of something that's shipped across the Pacific has to do not just with the kind of ship and the kind of fuel, but also the shipping lane and the stops it made along the way, and uh, a whole bunch of other factors, and 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 you know what we're seeing now is just uh, the the uh, electrification or or the renewable energy inputs uh, for for ocean going shipping that uh, we're now seeing in the rest of the transportation system, the rest of the world. So how do we make uh, wind assistance, rotor technology? How do we use other kinds of technologies to reduce power consumption and rudders and steerings. And then you wrote about something called bubble surfing, which is an innovation uh, used to uh, basically make a, a ship go faster along the water. So these are all really, uh, this is, these are technologies that are much needed because this industry has not changed in a long, long time. Yeah. And I think that there will be two other things that come to bear on this as well. One is the money, right? So we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the role of investors in, in influencing change. And I think that will be the case here. So if you're going to go out and finance one of these massive ships, um, you're going to start thinking about the risks. Like, do you really want to fund the construction of an oil tanker? Are they, how much are they going to be carrying? Um, if this is the dirtiest ship around, like, do you want to uh, finance that? So, so I believe that that will be a factor. Um, you know, finance companies, banks, and so forth will be looking at use of alternative fuels uh, of the retrofits that that you were just talking about, um, and then also the other equation um, and something that we'll be exploring more at, at Verge in in uh, the fall is what happens on land, right? So, what's happening in the ports system? So. Is that port encouraging its ships to be um, more environmentally uh, uh, operated? Are they using technologies to help schedule um, the, the unloading and loading of them more, more appropriately and quickly and efficiently? Um, what are they doing to uh, handle the use of fuel in birth, right? Um, there's a really specific example, Los Angeles, which I was interested to learn. They have more than 30 births that can provide electricity in port, so it's called the Alternative Maritime Program, and it's something you've, um, a power, the Alternative Maritime Power Program, or AMP, right? Um, and they have more birds than any other port in the world. So they're trying to, you know, say, hey, you know, come here, we, we, we operate more 
uh, efficiently. We're encouraging this and so forth. So I think um, watch the ports. Um, and we're as, always as well. good to celebrate the miracle of births. <laughs> So one of the things I did uh, recently is I spoke at an event called the Pathways to 100% Renewable Energy Conference, hosted at UC Berkeley uh, last week, and looking at, you know, what does it take to get to 100%? Hawaii being the first state to do so, uh, committing to do that by 2045. Uh, California, hopefully, there's some uh, action in the works to uh, equal that commitment, Um, California on some days gets 50, 60, even 70% of its power from renewable energy. But along the way, uh, one of the people there who who keynoted uh, was uh, Chris Lee. Chris is uh, really one of the rising stars in Hawaii politics, and he is the reason that uh, Hawaii became the first state to commit to 100% renewable energy by 2045 uh, through some bills that he authored a few years ago. And um, I had a chance to... uh, Spent a little time with him, had a great conversation, and uh, here, here it is. As many of you know, the prime reason why we do a Verge Hawaii event is because of a law that was passed in 2015 uh, that to commit Hawaii to be the first state to go 100% renewable uh, in the electricity sector originally by 2045. And I'm here with well, the author of that bill, State uh, Representative Chris Lee from Hawaii. Chris, since that law was passed, you've added uh, the transportation sector, adding schools. Now you've committed, or you're in the process, I think, of committing Hawaii to be just carbon positive uh, by 2045. What have you learned and about how to make change happen at that scale, scope, and speed? I think the, the key thing that we've discovered uh, along the way is that once you get a goal in place, you get stakeholders aligned, and people start actually digging in to figure out how we achieve that goal. And that's key because I think until people are forced to actually put their nose to the grindstone and do the due diligence, people don't know what's possible. Because even with our RPS, what we found was um, all the opponents who traditionally had come out of the woodwork, anytime we talked about something like that, at the end of the day, are now completely supportive of this direction. Because not only does it make sense as, as you know, a step forward for Hawaii to protect us against climate change and everything else, but it makes sense for our economy because it's created a huge number of jobs. We're growing industry in the renewable sector left and right. And most of all, it works for consumers. And it's it's not only possible to use technology to achieve these things, but to ultimately save money for people. And that's a huge, huge win for everyone. So what was the argument that, that made the most sense? Was it an economic one? Was it a, a security and resilience one, energy security, uh, climate security? Uh, what do you think was the most powerful tool in getting that buy-in? Yeah, I think, I think part of it, um, like 75% of it was, uh, yes, it's our climate and everything else, but but more than anything, it's economic opportunity. And I think that's something that people slowly came around to realize, but ultimately is what um, let it pass. And at the end of the day, there was still probably about you know 20% of that, which was uh, that we're going to do this with a faith that technology is going to continue to improve, that we're going to be able to achieve this goal. And that's something that when we ultimately passed the bill meant that we passed it 74 to 2 with just two people um, dissenting, and and they've been voted out of office since. So I feel like it's been a win politically, it's been a win for our economy, and we're seeing that play out right now. So now there's a new bill, I think, that's about transforming the utility industry in Hawaii. Talk a little bit about that. 
You know, we, when we passed the bill, uh, the original RPS, the 100% that uh, was now three years ago, what we found was the utility then did its due diligence and looked at how it's actually going to be able to achieve that. And actually doing the work, what they found was not only can they achieve it by 2045, achieve 100% renewable energy for Hawaii, but they can do it by 2040. And not only by 2040, but they can do it at a cost savings of over $5 billion for our state, which is huge for consumers. And so what they've asked for along the way is, you know, how can we um, ensure a sustainable business model for the utility going forward with DG and everything else coming onto the grid and, and a whole new paradigm. And so um, one of the bills that we just sent to the governor a few days ago would change their business model to a performance-based rate model where they earn the same revenue they always have, but they do it based on their performance on certain metrics, like achieving renewable energy goals and achieving cost savings for consumers and integrating more interconnected uh, renewable projects and doing so on a timely basis, data sharing and so on and so on. And so it's a way that the utility can transition into this new 21st century energy ecosystem and do so in a way that sustains their business model going forward. And what do they think about this? Have they been pushing back? Are they all in? I think there has been pushback, but I think it's largely because for some folks in the, the utility side of the industry, you know, they want their cake and eat it too. And, and so they want the traditional rate uh, revenue returns that, that they earn money off of by investing in projects and doing all the stuff they're doing today. And they want to be able to earn additional money if they achieve good performance on these metrics. And so we're saying, you know what, we can't do both and we can't give you everything. Um, consumers have to be part of this equation too. So this is a way to transition that model and create something sustainable for everybody. So I'm sure there are a lot of people, I know there are a lot of people that say, well, that's Hawaii. You, that's a different state. And they say that about California, too. That's an only in California kind of thing. And here we are at this uh, event on pathways to 100% renewable energy. Uh, how replicable is what happened in Hawaii uh, across the rest of the United States? You know, I think um, on two fronts, it's absolutely replicable. And the first, uh, from a technology perspective, you know, Hawaii is kind of four major grids that range in size from tiny 20 megawatts all the way up to about 1700. And these are grids which can't rely on power from the next state over or anything of the sort. It's got to be done on our grids, on our islands, and you integrate 100% renewable energy. Uh, even using the technology today, we've seen this is absolutely possible. You can create a stable grid and a stable demand curve throughout the day. And that's something that can be done anywhere if we can do it on our grids. On the second portion of it, which is making sure this is financeable and uh, is going to work out for consumers and, and all the stakeholders at the end, we know that right now we pay a significant amount more for power than most people because we've got to import oil and then there's a lot of cost associated with that. But we also know the cost of renewables are dramatically decreasing. We've seen 80% drop in PV over the last decade, 70% drop in uh, battery storage, and that's continuing. And as that happens, these projects in any other state will pencil the same way that they pencil in Hawaii. And it is inevitable that we get there. It's just a question of how fast. Well, thank you for your leadership on all of that. Chris Lee, state representative in Hawaii, and mahalo for your leadership. And uh, we'll see you in June in Honolulu. Aloha. Thanks for having me. This week, GreenBiz debuted a quarterly feature called the Clean Energy Deal Tracker, compiled and researched by senior writer Cassandra Sweet. We take a look at the biggest deals, but also the most unique arrangements and, and what makes them uh, particularly intriguing for buyers of corporate renewables. This month, we had an opportunity to speak with two experts in that space, Brian Janis, the Director of Energy Strategy at Microsoft, 
and Bryn Baker, who manages the Renewable Energy Strategy at World Wildlife Fund. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Cassandra about some of the findings detailed in this week's story. Um, you, you have been in particular covering this sector for a while, and I'm wondering if you, if you have just noticed any kind of um, shift in behavior. So, for example, um, any new types of deals? I mean, what, what, which of these deals was the most notable in your mind? They're all really interesting, uh, you know, for for, the, for different reasons. But but one that stuck out uh, was a deal that Nestle did, where it's the company is planning to buy wind power from Indiana and um, match that with the amount of power that uh, some of its facilities use nearby in Pennsylvania. And the interesting thing about this deal is that, you know, several years ago, there weren't really wind farms being developed in Indiana. <laughs> so it's it's fortuitous for Nestle that they could find renewable energy generation being developed, you know, fairly close, not in the same state, but but close by, close enough. And that's something that they really wanted was was to have renewable energy being generated very close to to where they use power. I spoke with Bryn Baker from World Wildlife Fund about this deal and how it is part of a, a larger trend. I think that is what you're seeing is that more and more companies, as they enter the market or as they continue to be a big player in the market, are committed to buying renewables more directly. And so that, that most often looks like a contract uh, for renewables that's either a virtual power purchase agreement or a direct per- power purchase agreement. Those are most of the kinds of deals that you hear mentioned in the marketplace. Companies are also trying to work with their utilities and design uh, programs and tariffs that are offered to those utilities so that they can buy renewables directly through that. But I think the common theme is that companies are trying to tie their purchasing to particular projects or a more direct story to tell about those projects as opposed to unbundled directs alone. So Nestle is a good example of, of a company that has, has shown that they, and stated that they want to be really committed to finding a project as local to their operations as possible. They, they weren't able to find a project in Pennsylvania uh, in their most recent deal, but they did find one in Indiana, and the, the energy from that deal goes into the exact same grid that they're located on, so they're able to tell that impact story in a, in a really strong way and, and link it to a broader commitment to, at the same time, finding ways to buy renewables in other markets where they may have more more limited options. So they're, they're really trying to tell a holistic story that we're firing on all cylinders. We're doing these deals where we can find them, but we're committed to some of the transformational changes that are needed to make longer term and more cost-effective options available to us. One thing that's notable is that almost all of the deals that have been announced so far this year are from new market entrants. So whether it's Fifth Third Bank or L'Oreal or Nestle or, or even AT&T, these are new players, and I think it's showing that there's just continued uh, growing momentum in the market. Switch is one that is not a new player, but they, they announced a, a pretty notable project because they, they announced a gigawatt of solar, which is the largest project in the country, and it's going to produce some of the cheapest cost power in the world. Uh, and it's a large enough project that it could produce the equivalent of uh, energy to power a, a million homes. So I think that one's pretty notable. I think L'Oreal also has found a way to thread the needle on renewable thermal, which is an area that we're seeing a lot of growing interest in. And so they were able to purchase the offtake from a landfill gas project in Kentucky and have made it financially viable by 
by selling some of the environmental attributes at the beginning of the project into the transportation market, but retaining those attributes, replacing them in the short term, but retaining them in the longer run to be able to say that there's enough output from that project that's going to offset 21 facilities in 12 states, making them carbon neutral. And so it both points to a really innovative solution for a company looking for renewable thermal solutions, which there aren't many of in the marketplace, but it also points to what we collectively need to be working on in the market to make these kinds of projects easier for others. So whether that's creating a tradable instrument or some way to track and validate claims or just enable companies to do projects further away from their facilities, those are the kinds of questions I think we need to answer on the renewable thermal. And, and L'Oreal is helping kind of point the way to what we need to solve. Cassandra, why doesn't why don't big corporates just buy renewable energy credits to do this? I mean, what is it about right now that they're 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 why are they going out and making these big deals? They could do it in so many easier ways. That's right, Heather. Um, companies have been buying renewable energy credits for a long time, and a lot of companies still do. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's real clean energy. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, you know, people should feel fine buying renewable energy credits. Uh, but but some of the bigger companies uh, are signing more sophisticated deals where they're going beyond just the credits and um, signing deals that lead to the uh, construction of new wind farms or solar farms or, or solar installations on rooftops, for that matter. Um, and companies really want to show that, that their purchases are making a difference, you know, that the, it's leading to... Uh, construction of new uh, clean energy generation. So we've also seen in the last quarter, and, and maybe to some extent last year, very few deals, but more deals happening outside of the United States. What are you uncovering? What do you see happening there as a trend? That's right. A lot of companies, they have global operations, and they want to be able to buy renewable energy uh, at, in those locations. Um, so Microsoft uh, was able to reach a deal in, well, that they announced in March where they're going to purchase uh, 60 megawatts of solar power from um, rooftop solar installations that are going to be spread across hundreds of rooftops in Singapore. Um, and they were able to reach this deal. Um, it's, it's a little bit novel, so it's not a power purchase agreement. It's an asset purchase agreement. <laughs> But um, the point is that um, there's, there's uh, a better reception around the world now, uh, especially countries in Asia, where it wasn't so easy for kind of an individual company to go out and buy energy, you know, a, like a non-energy company going out and buying renewable energy. And that's changing. Uh, so, so that's very positive. Um, Microsoft has some other renewable energy deals in other countries where it operates, including in the Netherlands. Um, and, and of course, Apple has, has reached some renewable energy deals as well in Singapore and other countries. So that's changing as well, that, that it's getting easier for companies to buy renewable energy near where they operate uh, in other countries in the world. And so you did have an opportunity to speak with Brian Janice of Microsoft. What is he telling you about how he was able to reach that Singapore deal? That's right. Uh, so Brian Janice said that they were very fortunate to be able to reach this deal in Singapore. Uh, one thing is that uh, if they tried to install the solar panels on their own operation there, their own building in Singapore, it just wouldn't generate enough electricity. Um, and so 
they were able to put this deal together in Singapore. It uh, it helps the island nation, and it also helps Microsoft. And here's Brian with some more perspective. And by the way, I'm going to give him his title. He is Director of Energy Strategy at Microsoft. Uh, we want to bring projects that, that, you know, first of all, really move the needle in terms of our own renewable energy goals and targets, as obviously our 315 megawatt project in Virginia did, as it was the largest uh, corporate solar deal uh, in history. Um, but we're also looking uh, to driving towards local sourcing of renewables. Um, in a market like Singapore, that can be a challenge as it's a, a very dense uh, area. Uh, and so in that case, it meant you know, aggregating hundreds of rooftops uh, across uh, the city uh, and able to get to that 60 megawatts that we were uh, targeting. We've seen you know, tremendous declines in the cost of renewable energy resources over the last several years. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, since 2009, you know, solar is down roughly 80%. Uh, wind is down about 60%. Uh, and so you know, we've really entered a period where the cost of these projects have become pretty compelling. Um, in fact, it, it, it is, you know, if you look back over the 125-year history of the electric grid, at least as we sort of know it today, um, you know, we have never experienced a time where a, t- a new technology has come into the marketplace, a new power generation technology that is that is quite so disruptive in terms of its ability to completely up in the cost structure. Um, you know, everything prior to what we've seen over the last several years has really been incremental changes with a slightly more efficient steam turbine, um, but nothing that that is introducing step changes in costs and cost improvement uh, over just a, a few year period. Um, you know, so that's one of the things that, that is a motivating factor for us. Um, but an, another thing, you know, that, that we're concerned about is, uh, you know, as we think about our, our cloud business, you know, which is increasingly just our business, um, you know, energy is our primary input for the services that we produce. Uh, and as such, it's, it's absolutely critical for us that we build a foundation for this business that is not only good for our business, but also good for the planet. Uh, and that's our responsibility as a corporate and as a global citizen. So Cassandra, so um, assuming you're going to take this on for the second quarter, I've already seen some deals come through my uh, inbox. Uh, but what are you looking for in 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 the next quarter of of renewables deals? The next quarter, I'll be looking for um, you know companies that haven't bought renewables before. Uh, also, some companies that made commitments uh, like Visa. So I don't know if if Visa is going to uh, announce a new deal. You know, this quarter, but but probably sometime this year, um, another company, uh, Switch, which is a data center operator in Nevada, announced last uh, in the first quarter that they are going to be um, uh, putting together some buyers, including themselves, to uh, to buy one gigawatt of solar power from uh, an as yet unnamed uh, solar farm to be developed in Nevada. So there are a lot of companies out there who have made commitments. Uh, they've joined, you know, RE100. There's a lot of activity out there. So I, I think the new deals are going to keep rolling in. Well, happy hunting. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Heather.
It's Coachella Week. The Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival kicked off last weekend and continues again this weekend, and ending with uh, Eminem, Portugal the Man, Cardi B, and of course, Beyonce. We thought it was a good time to check in with one of the producers, AEG, which is a, itself a global presenter of sporting and music events, to look at festivals and concerts through a green lens. Here to discuss that is John Marler, AEG, Senior Director, Energy and Environment. Hey, John. How are you, Joel? I'm doing great. So people don't typically associate concerts and festivals with environmental problems. What are some of the big issues you're dealing with? So uh, in my mind, it's two things. It's the generation of waste uh, from the concession operations, the camping operations, and just general uh, festival operations. And then there, uh, for a festival like Coachella, uh, which is um, in a, what we would call a greenfield area, uh, you know, not a dedicated uh, building or venue, uh, there's a portable generation. And so you have uh, diesel uh, and gasoline to fuel generators and vehicles and things of that nature. So what can you actually do to make it uh, less impactful? So on the generation side and the vehicle side, it's your standard efficiency techniques in terms of uh, making sure that uh, you're using uh, LED lights for the lighting towers, uh, concert uh, lights, uh, running the generators you know, in the most economical fashion, uh, sourcing vehicles that are more fuel efficient uh, than, than maybe the default uh, models. And then on the waste side, it's really just trying to uh, have a system from procurement down to hauling uh, that is optimized for the situation on the ground. Uh, and at that festival, it's, it's a large and complex venue and operation, so that's a constant challenge. So how's it going? What would you say is the state of sustainability in live entertainment? So I think it's good. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, interest and awareness on the part of all of the key stakeholders in the industry. But I would say compared to uh, entertainment events that are held in buildings, there's probably uh, more improvements that can be made with festivals and, and outdoor events relative to buildings. So like what? What's on your wish list? So again, you know, getting back to uh, the power generation and equipment, uh, you know, if you are holding an event uh, in a building or on the grounds of a building and you can plug into, uh, you know, grid power, by and large, that's going to be cheaper and more environmentally friendly than uh, using generators. Uh, so, you know, getting uh, the generator carbon uh impact and the fuel consumption down would be, you know, a, a great thing. Uh, and then with regard to waste and recycling, as you're aware, and I'm sure your listeners are aware, it's hard enough to optimize that in a building, um, you know, because of people's habits and the changing nature of the industry and, and uh, ability to find uh, off-takers for recyclables and composted materials, things like that. That's even more complicated when you have an event that uh, takes place for a limited amount of time uh, in generally you know, a, a more remote area with, which may not have the infrastructure that, that you have available in uh, more urban environments. So you know, those two things are the biggest challenges. So how about the, the, the permanent arenas? You, 
have uh, arrangements that are maybe your exclusive booker at, at arenas uh, all over the place uh, from uh, Times Square in, in New York to uh, the Showbox in Seattle and Shrine in L.A. Uh, are they starting to – are they putting solar on their roof? Are they really uh, getting to zero waste? How well are they doing and uh, what's pushing them to do more? So in our industry – I think it's just a general culture of efficiency. Uh, in sports entertainment, you have what are called dark days, which means that if there's not an event going on, then the buildings are basically powered down because you know you don't have uh, a tenant or a client uh, that is going to be able to compensate you for uh, having the HBAC turned on and the lights. So when I first started this job, I was really impressed with kind of the, the built-in efficiencies and sustainable uh, related measures uh, with how we operate the buildings. And so in the last five years, we've just kind of amplified that with uh, LED lights uh, with a lot of our buildings are, uh, you know, they're 80 to 100% uh, filled out with LED lights. Uh, the HVAC systems are getting upgraded. And, and that's, again, just taking advantage of products that are, have recently come out on the market, um, variable speed drives and the like. Um, and with regard to solar, uh, the challenge with solar with a lot of these buildings is first, they don't have uh, a ton of load during the day. So solar, because it peaks in, in the midday and the events are typically in the evenings, not really a good fit. So it's kind of hard to take advantage of solar at a lot of locations. The technology that I'm most excited about and that we've really started to deploy is energy storage. Uh, because of that unique load profile with having events uh, in the evenings, uh, we tend to pay very high demand charges. And having a battery uh, that you can deploy to uh, shave your peak demand during those periods can be a real money saver. So what's the dream here? I mean, if you if you in two or three years could see the ideal, let's talk about Coachella just for, for a minute. If you could see the ideal greenest possible Coachella event uh, festival, what would that look like? Yep. So uh, I'm not going to say zero waste because I think that's a real challenge for any building or event. Uh, in fact, the definition of zero waste, if I'm not mistaken, you know, means that you can be 90% or better. Uh, but to me, it's, it's making a big dent in the waste and recycling operations. Uh, and really that comes down to uh, single-use serviceware. So things like water bottles, uh, drink cups, uh, plates, nacho boats, and things like that, uh, trying to get those transferred to basically reusable materials, you know, permanent silverware or, or plates and things like that, or finding uh, a compostable alternative and a facility that can actually take that stream of compostable products off our hands. Um, so that would be great. And then the other thing is, is really just trying to continue to make a dent in uh, the fuel consumption for generation. And, uh, you know, what I've seen is that uh, people are entering uh, into the market with storage uh, on the generation side. So basically being able to enhance the efficiency of the generators by using batteries somewhere in the system. And then we've also seen uh, really good development on the light towers uh, using, you know, small solar arrays to power, uh, you know, a trailer-mounted battery system. So you have a, a, 
a light tower that doesn't need you know a fuel generator at that location. Um, so to me, those are the two big steps that will probably take place in the next three years. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of work to do, but it sounds like you've already done a lot. So thanks for that. John Marler is AEG's Senior Director of Energy and Environment. Thanks, John. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out our other podcasts, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We like to get your cards and letters, particularly your cards. I don't know, for some reason, those always rise to the top. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce, and our intrepid managing editor is, of course, Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>